where I see maybe any inroads that I can make for, for student populations that maybe don't have a voice at the table, I sort of feel a sense of responsibility to continue to move. But I, I, I'd be lying if I said even even now in the role that I sit, I don't I don't often wonder how much of me climbing this leadership ladder has been more so because I, I feel a sense of responsibility because there's no others at the table versus what I would feel happy doing, which is I, I love just working with students and families. Today at Elevating Admission Voices Week, I talked to Myra Lagunas about revolutionary love and how no matter what she does, she'll always first and foremost be an admission counselor at heart. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Elevating Admission Voices. I am Angie Cooksey, your host, and joining me today is someone who I truly am just in awe of from afar. I don't know if she knows that, um, but I'm not ashamed to say it because I think we should tell people that they're awesome when they're awesome. Um, Ms. Myra Lagunas from Northern Illinois University. She serves as the Assistant Vice President of Enrollment Services and Director of Undergraduate Admissions. That is the most admissions title I think I've heard in a while. We all have those super long titles, right? Um, Myra, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, What we do here is have space to hear from the people that maybe we don't hear from every day in our field. And um, one of the things that I've been talking a lot about is this is a table in a field where there's room for all of us. And I think hearing from people is so important and hearing and sharing their stories, I think is so valuable. Um, so thank you for joining me. Uh, one place to start is really your story. Um, and so that's what I'd like to give you a little bit of space as we navigate our conversation today. Um, who are you? How do you identify? What did your role or road to Northern Illinois look like? Um, and then I have some, you know, typical corny interview questions for you. That sounds good. I'm super excited. I love sharing my story. I think it's really important to present uh, narratives as often as possible because a lot of the work that we do, I think uh, in enrollment management anyway, it starts to, to some degree, starts to um, mimic business processes and we lose the human touch for some of these elements. So I appreciate any opportunities to share narratives. And then I think counter narratives given my my own identity. So um, I consider myself a first generation professional. I am the proud daughter of Mexican immigrants. Um, I am I consider myself an, an ally to the undocumented documented community. Uh, though you know there's contention about who and how we sort of identify ourselves as allies, right? Um, I am a Latina, uh, Latinx, um, depending on my mood. Sometimes I'm Chicana, sometimes I'm Mexicana. So um, <laughs> I, I, I'm never Hispanic. Uh, I do not identify as Hispanic. And there's, uh, I think, some historical context or some good reads that I'm happy to, to make recommendations for. But um, all of those things are are some of, um, I think, my most salient identities. Um, I, I'm an admission counselor, I think, through and through, regardless of super long title. <laughs> I would consider myself an admission counselor forever. Um, one of my favorite parts of this job has been able to interact with families, with students, with students of color, with students uh, from low SES backgrounds, from students who have been historically marginalized. And I think the my my passion in this work really uh, supports, I think, a mission of access uh, and equity for, for students in higher education. I started in admissions about a little over 11 years ago. Um, prior to that, uh, this was actually not my first job out of college. I worked in early childhood education. I was just oh, sharing not too long ago. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, like I went with the through, little, little babies or like zero to three. So oh my pregnant mothers and then with their babies until they were three. And we did, um, uh, referrals to, to community-based organizations that I think that was my first line of work in, um, I think community organizing and then, uh, community supports and, um, community-based organizations. So I worked for early head start and I was a home-based educator. I would go into, um, invited into people's homes and worked with parents to, to, model, I guess, assessments for students and, and make the appropriate referrals when they needed speech therapy or supported the parents sure. and enrolling students in school. Um, and then I, I I worked at that job for about a year and I had a friend who reached out, a roommate from college actually, and she said, you know, they're hiring, they're looking for Spanish speakers. And I was like, oh, I'm a Spanish speaker. <laughs> I didn't even Check ask. No, yeah, no, I didn't even ask what they were doing. She said something about helping students enroll in college. And I was like, I love to help people. Um, and so I ended up applying for this admission position um, with the Chicago Satellite Office for the University of Illinois at Urbana. Um, and I had no idea that they a, had a Chicago satellite office. I had no idea that the job would be based in Chicago. All I knew is that it was working, um, using my Spanish to help Spanish speaking families, um, access education. Um, so I was very shocked when I received the job offer. Um, it was my like firm first formal job offer. And I remember, um, the person who called me to offer the job and I was like, I'll take it. <laughs> like I didn't ask salary. I didn't ask benefits. I was like, whatever, I'll take it. Where, where were you? Do you remember? I was in the parking lot. I was just leaving my job for the day. And I was sitting in the parking lot, just sitting there, just kind of like, just sad at the state of, of affairs of the world. And I got the call yeah. and I was just like, oh, I get to help more people in a different space. Um, but I was just, you know, it was exciting because it was a new opportunity, but it was also heartbreaking because I think I love, I love working with littles. Uh, the more that I think about it, the more that I'm like, oh, they're just so cute. And they'll listen to everything you say. Um, so I was sitting there, um, in the parking lot, just waiting to go home. And that's when I got the call and I was just so excited. And I was like, yeah, I'll take the job. And she's like, well, you know, when, when are you available to start? And I was like next week. And <laughs> not even considering like there's a two weeks notice there's formal processes. I just, I'm, I'm a first generation professional through and through just like no idea with the yeah. context of working in an office space is like. So then I talked to my boss and he was like, you know, typically people give two, <laughs> two weeks notices. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I'll call them back. So then I called back and I was like, look, I have to give a two weeks notice. And they're like, yeah, we figured. <laughs> um, so then we figured out a, a time for me uh, to start that was appropriate. And um, my first day on the job, we had to drive to Urbana. So I met my future boss who became my mentor later, Oscar Rodriguez. Uh, who's over at a UIC now. And as soon as I jumped in the car, you know, I, I, I have such high anxiety um, that the night before I had spent figuring out what conversations we were going to be having. And I had index cards of themes of things that I, I thought I should bring up for a two hour oh car ride. <laughs> and as soon as I got in the car, Oscar was like, so the first thing you should know about me is I don't do small talk. And I was like, oh, dear God. <laughs> just like in my mind, my index cards was like ripping in half. Um, but it was a, it was a good ride. I got to meet people. I got to under, understand generally what the position was about. Um, but I, I'd be lying if I said I, people, people were speaking in code. They were talking about colleges. They were talking about 
um, different um, approaches to, to programs of study and changing majors and IECAC. And I was just like, I don't know what any of these things mean. I, I just no background. <laughs> so I was like, okay, okay. And I do what I usually do now is I have a little um, um, section of notes in my, um, in my iPhone where I just type in words that I've never heard or I acronyms, <laughs> and I will look them up at the end of the day to see like, is there anything that I should know? Is there something that I already know, but didn't calculate into the equation as I was processing information? So um, that was my first job in admissions. And I have loved it. I have loved working with families. Um, after working for uh, U of I, I, I was looking for more opportunities to expand my, my skill set, my knowledge base. I think there's always changes in leadership as well that sometimes are the indication that there's now new opportunities or that you should be pursuing new opportunities. And I did. Um, I ended up at the Golden Apple Scholars Program, which allowed me to continue to, to assist folks in a, a more specific population uh, of students who were all looking to become teachers. Um, I'm very proud of the work that I did there because we were hoping to scale um, the size of the organization, but I also made a lot of inroads in bringing the conversation about undocumented students pursuing education. Um, at that time, there was still the, the organization, I think, was a little bit reluctant to, to do more research about what licensure looks like for undocumented students. And the more that I dug, the more that I understood that there was, there's no process at all and how people were accounting for undocumented students after graduation and pursue and students full on pursuing education degrees that would not allow them to teach. And I was just, you know, I, I was heartbroken, but I was like, I, I have to figure out how to, how to try to fix this. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Ultimately, each inst- each public institution was using their own discretion to figure out whether or not how they advise students who are undocumented in pursuing education. And um, we started having conversations with partners of Golden Apple to say we need to establish a protocol and we need to establish how to support them and how to ensure that we are not um, perpetuating uh, um, disinformation or mis- is it misinformation? Or dis- I think it could go in. I think it could go either way. Let's go either way. <laughs> incorrect information <laughs> um, about like uh, about possibilities for teaching um, in, in licensure. And so um, we were able to scale the program. Um, we've started we started having really good conversations. Um, and then another opportunity um, sort of um, appeared to go back to work uh, for U of I in admissions, but leading the Chicago Satellite Office. Um, and I was like, I, you know, I loved working for my school. I loved working for, I I truly believe in the mission of the Chicago satellite office, which has historically existed, um, to support the enrollment of underrepresented student populations. And so I went back and I had a plan of attack and I was just, I was so happy doing, doing that work. After that, uh, I I had a calling from Oscar Rodriguez who said, I'm posting a position. And I I mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm very loyal to people. Um, I also, I'm very loyal to, um, I think opportunities to, to implement growth and, 
um, and, 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 and opportunities for access and equity. And I think UIC is on a, an amazing path in doing that for a lot of students. Um, and so I was like, you know, I'm, I'm also here for any opportunities for growth for myself. I, I do fully understand and I've seen it in, in multiple instances that there's not a lot of voices of people of color in higher leadership positions. Yeah. Um, I will say, admittedly, I would have been comfortable being an admission counselor for the rest of my life. But, um, you know, there's bills to pay. <laughs> I am also... Yeah. Uh, I will say there, there's a part of, of my identity as a first generation professional that is very much tied to family. And um, I feel I feel a sense of responsibility to ensure that my family is taken care of. And as one of the first professionals in my family, I take very seriously um, the planning of, um, of what legacy is going to mean in my family. And so for a lot of children of immigrants, I think that we are our parents' uh, retirement funds. We are our parents' retirement plan. And though it's yeah. not intentional, I, I've had this conversation multiple times with my parents where they're like, you know, our only goal for you is to be self-sufficient. We There's no expectation you'll take care of us. But hearing their stories, hearing, you know, how my father crossed the border, all the things he had to live mm-hmm. um, to ensure that I had opportunity, just it, it doesn't sit well with me that I wouldn't be able to take care of them now that I have the means to. So I think um, that coupled with, um, you know, where I see um maybe any inroads that I can make for, for student populations that maybe don't have a voice at the table. I sort of feel a sense of responsibility to continue to move, but I, I I'd be lying if I said, even, even now in the role that I sit, I don't, I don't often wonder, um, how much of me climbing this leadership ladder has been more so because I, I feel a sense of responsibility because there's no others at the table, um, versus what I would feel happy doing, which is I, I love just working with students and families. Um, so this is this is how I've ended up at NIU. <laughs> well, I I I have to say, listening to your story and and especially your your conversation about your family and your parents, I think there's so many professionals out there that can relate to that. And um, as a listener of your story. I hope your parents hear that. Um, I know sometimes it's hard for parents to hear that their families and their, their young, cause you're always going to be your parents' baby, right? Like it doesn't matter how old you are, like how proud you are of them. I think it comes through, even though if those aren't the words that you necessarily, like I had like goosebumps listening to your story about your family and, and, and the, that sense of responsibility. And I was reading of, you were quoted in a, in an NIU, um, Northern Illinois, Today article where you were talking about people are much more comfortable when they work with someone who shares their lived experience. And, and in that article, you were specifically work, talking about Latinx families and, and the importance of them seeing you up on the stage and what that's meant. Um, I'm kind of curious, flipping that a little bit, because you were sort of starting to talk about that. What has that meant to you in our profession? Um, and how do you want to create space in this field? I think as you were talking about new professionals and, and first-generation professionals, that's not a conversation a lot of people are having right now. And I think you bring up a really good point of like, how are we as those in leadership educating those who are coming up behind us as we've navigated some of these uncharted places ourselves? And so I'd be curious kind of your thoughts on that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's instances that I haven't been able to articulate as much as I have now with the experience that I've gained 
Um, I'll point to going to U of I as an undergraduate student um, at a historically white institution, sitting in class. And the first professor I ever saw who was a Latina, her name was Sylvia. And I was just like, I, I, I know you're Latina. You haven't explicitly said it, but I remember sitting in her class and this just reoccurring feeling of wanting to cry and just hug her. And I didn't know what was going on with me. I just, I just knew that I saw her and I saw comfort in her and it just overwhelmed me with emotions all the time. But I I could, again, I couldn't articulate what was going on. And in, in, in retrospect, now I can see I was, I was out of my comfort zone. I was dealing with culture shock. I was dealing with a lot of issues at home and having someone who I I think internalized would understand where I was coming from simply because of her identity. Um, that was a huge deal for me. You know, as, as an aside, I've actually run into her in professional circles now. And I was like, I, I used to dream of hugging you. I know it's super weird to tell you. <laughs> um, and she's phenomenal. She, she was an advisor at U of I now. Um, but I love those full circle moments. Sorry. I sometimes I like have to pull a pause because I think they're so important to recognize. Oh yeah. I try to do it as often as I can with all the professionals that have just in some way, shape or form, um, impacted, supported, um, elevated me, um, full full circle. Um, but I, I, you know, I hosted an event at Northern not too long ago for admitted students. I've only been here for about a year. And in the first event that I went in there, I presented myself. And then I always do a bit in Spanish because I speak Spanish. Why wouldn't I? And I said, if anyone needs help and anyone needs translations, or if anyone wants to talk about any of these processes, all of this in Spanish, right? I said, feel free to come up to me at any time. And I can't tell you the number of families, uh, Spanish speaking families that came over after parents hugging me, telling me to tell my parents how proud they were. And I was like, I I will let them know, but I, it wasn't (laughs) something I was prepared to hear. You know, I think it's always, I've always been received, uh, very well by Latinx families and admissions that that I'm hoping to connect who say, you know, thank you so much for, for making this a lot easier for me to be able to understand, but I've never had been in a position where people without knowing me would come over and say like, this is, this is who I want my child to be like, I'm so glad you're here for us. Thanks for being here for us. Thank your parents for being here, uh, for, for, for having you here for us. And I, I, it was, it was beautiful. Um, but I, I say all that to say that I, I feel a sense of responsibility now to do it. I don't, I think that I've had a lot of folks who want to shine a light on me and say like, this is the exemplary person of like someone who's coming from, you know, whatever situation she's coming from, she's overcome and she's persisted and she is resilient. And I think all of those things are important, but I think it's in every conversation that that comes up, I want to be intentional about saying, yeah, but I'm one of so many, I'm one of so many and we need to be able to, I shouldn't be the exception. I should be, this should be consistent. This should be the rule. This should be um, an opportunity for so many more people from my experience, right? And so when I I get that shine sort of, that light shine on me or cast on me, I I love to redirect. And if there are young professionals in the room that are doing amazing things, I like to say, well, have you heard of so-and-so and and the work that they're doing? Well, you know, I couldn't leave this alone. There's all of these other people. And um, anytime I get tapped into to participate in a task force because of my knowledge or because of 
whatever indications right. one has that I would be a good voice, I'll say, well, there's another voice that maybe a lot of people haven't had an opportunity to bring. And so I try to bring in people to committees or um, say, you know, I don't have the capacity to participate, but let me bring in somebody, you know, who maybe no one has had a, ch a chance to meet yet, who I know is just going to do amazing work. And I, that's how we move this field, right? When we can tap other people. And I, I have two questions off of that. And the first one is kind of, as you were talking about routinely being the person that's tapped, how do you set your own boundaries for yourself so that you don't get burned out? Because when you're always the one that's getting pulled up, it's really hard to, to figure out when can you say no and still maintain your own sense of professional space. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, I think that's a skill set, honestly, in and of itself to be able to say yeah. no to, to people. Um, and I think it, it's taken me a really long time to figure that, uh, figure out that I can say no, because I, I often weigh the responsibility versus the personal toll. And I, I still don't know what a fine line between is, because I know that, it, <clears throat> for example, if I'm not bringing up issues of undocumented students or issues of access for students who are coming from low SES backgrounds, I, I don't know that I can trust that, that those issues will be brought up. That's not to say that my colleagues or coworkers across the field don't always bring those up, but I know that we sometimes rely on the identities that we bring to have people um, elevate those experiences in places where uh, we feel we can do them justice. And given my personal experiences, I, I also weigh that against not being, not having my experience be the token experience for that situation. And so there's so many approaches and, and I think mine, uh, other, I've got to be in a good mindset to be able to say, I'm comfortable in saying no, because another voice will be represented or I'm I, in the last two years, I'm just, I'm going to be completely honest. It's been more so like, is this going to push me to burnout? Because there's just some situations where I just can't, I, I need to put myself first. And I think this has been the last two years have been a, a transition for me to figure out um, where I'm tugging the line between feeling comfortable having these conversations repeatedly and feeling burnout about them and where I can trust others to have the conversations that need to be had if I'm not in the room. Yeah, I was talking to somebody the other day and, and there's that whole like, oh, it's about work-life balance. And I I think it's just a, a paradigm that sets us up for failure, frankly. Um, and I, I like to shift it and talk about work-life flow and finding, I think what you're talking about feels a lot like that of kind of every situation is individually navigated and you have to give yourself the space to assess where am I right now? And that can look different in six months and being able to reevaluate that, um, I think is really important and important for people to hear that it's okay to do, uh, because this is a field where they will, they, the elusive they, but the, as a field, we rely on volunteers to get a lot of stuff done and that can burn us out as a field. And I think we're seeing it across the country as so many of our offices are struggling with resignation issues and staffing issues and filling positions. I think we have to, as a field, look, take a really hard look at what are we asking of our, of our people um, to be able to get this work done. And, and I think you bring up some really good insight into that. You mentioned a little bit ago, right at the beginning, um, Oscar, who is your, who's served as a mentor and, and really the importance of mentors to you in your, in your journey. Um, I'd love to hear you expand a little bit about that. And what is, 
I always am curious about the mentor-mentee relationship because I don't think anybody tells you how to do it. So I'd be curious how you navigated that. Yeah, I love it. Uh, I, I love that question because I think that that's the that's the next piece or that's the most one of it's going to be one of the most important pieces as we're talking about folks circulating out of this field. Like we've always known in education, like I feel like everyone knows we, we're not paid that well. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah, no one right. told me. <laughs> Well, uh, and, and, but I think that the, the, it's the fulfilling piece, right. That keeps us here. It's the piece where we work with students. It's a, but mentorship is definitely going to be one of those pieces that we need to be exploring a lot more. Um, and I think mentorship is so important for me. It starts as, uh, exactly as you said, you know, you either had a really great mentor and now you want to be that for somebody, or you didn't have a mentor and now, and you understand the importance of it. So you want to create that for somebody else as well. Right. So it's sparked from those places, but I, I don't know that we have any formal, I mean, there's formal programs that can pair you with mentors, but there's no necessary, uh, not necessarily a guideline of what that looks like. It's, and it's funny that it comes up now because uh, I just got tapped to be part of the junior board for uh, a school in Chicago. And as part of that uh, service, I am also required to uh, work with, well, not required, I am requested to take on a mentee. And it's a young woman who is transitioning to um, high school. It's a young person. Um, and I was thinking about what that, what a formalized mentorship relationship looks like. And, you know, that's very different for working with a student than it is working with other professionals. But um, I think the underlying foundation is what, what are we hoping to get out of this relationship? And that's ultimately how I started to have a conversation with them. I said, um, what are your expectations of me? Are you looking for a friend? Are you looking for someone to share ideas with? I can be any of those things. Um, and But I don't know that it happens until we get to know each other, I said. So I ask those questions so that you have them at the forefront. But I don't expect that you'll be able to answer those questions now. Let's get to know each other. Let me get to know your temperament. Let I hope you get to know who I am, where I'm coming from. Um, but I think that there is, there's got to be a foundation. Um, I'm about to sound just completely off the wall, maybe, but uh, there's got to be a foundation rooted in revolutionary love. Um, I've been reading a ton of bell hooks, so <laughs> I'm going to pause there to say that. Um, but I think that there's, there's she, in, in all relationships, we have to have this founded idea that there's a vulnerability that requires you, uh, that requires all parties involved in any type of relationship to say, I've got your best interest at heart. You have to trust that I do have your best interest at heart. Um, and for a mentor relationship, that is fundamental. And I think that is key because otherwise you're not open to hearing feedback and I'm not open to receiving it and vice versa. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't know where your advice is coming from and if it's intended to hurt me or if it's intended to help me. Otherwise, I just don't know who you are as a person. And so I, I established that. And I know it sounds kind of wild. And I know that for some people who maybe don't necessarily engage in conversations about feelings of vulnerability, because mm -hmm. that's just so far removed from what a professional standard of operating uh, within an office culture looks like. Um, I, I know it can sound really wild, but I think it's so important to have that foundation and to set that standard for myself and to say, I, I hope that you know that whatever perspective I offer is coming from a place of love, but I also hope 
um, that you'll be able to challenge what I know because I understand I'm coming from an experience and that's going to be vastly different from anybody else who didn't grow up as a twin sibling of mine. Um, even, but even then, you know, in, I have a sister who's very close in age as, as I am, and we still, we experience a lot of the same things together, but we're still such different people. Yeah. It's so interesting. I love family dynamics. I'm one of six. And so I think family relationships are fascinating. Um, but like even within the same house, even if you and your sister are close in age and have experienced the thing, same things, your reflection of those things and the impact they have on you, like you might have something that was so transformational and your sister is like, I literally don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like how we all process things just completely yeah. different. Yeah. I think at the heart of, of really what you're saying and what I'm hearing is regardless of where we are in this work, we have to remember that we're all people and we, we have to give people the space to bring themselves to the work that we're doing. And, and, and we're not working with robots and, and this is hard work. Um, and we have to give people the space to celebrate and to grieve and to process and to be curious and, and all of those things. And I, and I think that relationship that you're talking about with mentorship is such a great way to navigate that, especially if you find a mentor, maybe that's outside of your own building. Cause I think that sometimes people have challenges to be able to have those authentic, vulnerable conversations mm-hmm. with somebody who is currently their boss, or maybe might be their boss someday, or is they might be their boss someday. You know, that's, that's tricky sometimes to navigate. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. So I, I have two last questions. Um, you are such an amazing champion and advocate for the students in our field. Um, and anyone who ever has the chance to, to meet you and know, you knows that immediately, um, because that's just who you are. You bring that to every conversation that I've had the privilege of, of interacting or experiencing with you. Um, I'm curious though, what has advocating for yourself looked like and how have you learned to do that? Or how do you lean in to do that? Um, cause I think sometimes that can be hard. Oh, that's super hard for me. I feel like on the one hand, like I grew up in a culture um, that doesn't uh, shames any sort of um, own self-elevation, right? Like we're part of a group. You're not on your own. Like your successes are all our successes. (laughs) That's good and that's bad. And it's good because it it roots me in community and in the larger picture. Um, But it's sometimes a challenge in these spaces because in order to make way, you need to be able to throw elbows sometimes to like make your way to the front, right? (laughs) Um, and, and that's been very hard for me. Like in those situations, I am going to stand in the corner of the room and be like, let's hear what everyone else has to say first. And if I have an opportunity to add, I will. Um, and it takes so much for me to work up, to be able to share my thoughts sometimes. Cause I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I'm good enough. Um, I, I'm, I'm still having so much of the imposter syndrome in, in, in meetings. I think all the time, oh. it just, is my English okay? Is it elevated? Is it professional? And I'm like, Myra, you know, professionalism is a myth. Like, you know it and you tell people this, but, but it, oh, it's tough to remember when you're in the spaces. Um, I guess to answer your question, I, I don't know. I don't know that I've, I've been able to, to, to defend myself in spaces or to, um, uh, to, to successfully advocate for myself. I think to some degree I, I have in the way that I've, 
whether or not I've thought that I'm good enough for opportunities, I've, I've put myself in that space. And I say, well, if, if they don't take me, like, here's my resume, if they don't like it, that's okay. Here's my interview. If you don't like it, that's okay. Um, and I think in, in that way, through formal processes, I've, I've doubted myself all the time, but I've put myself in a place where I'm like, well, I'll, I'll throw my hat in the ring and see if I'm considered. Um, but I, there's I, a I ton of research out there that talks about how women often just don't do that. They wait until they meet every criteria on on a job description or every criteria on something before they do it and miss the opportunity because they didn't even give themselves a chance. So I think that's a huge thing that you're like, shoot, I'm just going to do it and see where we land. Well, I'll say that's also, that's also very like male energy. Like to your point, yeah. it's the male counterparts that I've surrounded myself with. They're like, Oh, Lagunas, you would be great for this. Or you would be great for that. <laughs> and I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Like even for this this Northern gig, I said to Oscar, my boss, then, um, you know, can you believe someone said that I shouldn't be applying for this job? And he was like, why not? And I was like, well, it's because, (laughs) (laughs) but also like, you're my boss, what's going on. And he was just like, throw your head in the ring. If they say no, they say no, let them decide. Don't discount yourself. But again, it's, it's, it's people. I'm so lucky to have a tribe and people who hype me and people who elevate me and, uh, and people who root for me. Um, I think, I think that's so important to find your tribe in these spaces. Well, I think with that, that is a perfect place to end. And really that is what this podcast is about is, is hyping people up and giving others the space to hear stories that, maybe some part of they can identify with or see themselves in. Um, And so Myra, thank you so much for joining me. It is always such a joy to get to speak with you. Um, And we will see you here next time on Elevating Admission Voices. Thanks, Myra. Thank you. Thank you. And I just want to say to you, like, thanks so much for everything that you do to elevate people's voices. Um, I think, I think this is so important. I think we all have to, we all have a calling that we find based on our own experiences. And I think you've done such a kick-ass job at pursuing it and and, and doing it because a lot of people will talk about it, but not a whole lot of people do about it. And you got a whole ass program of elevating (laughs) women that I'm just like, yes, I am here for it. And also shoe game is on point. Thanks. Well, we got to keep it. Got to keep it right. All right. Bye everybody.